Dear God, speak through me this morning. <clears throat> Pray that I would rightly proclaim your word. Give me your spirit. Open our hearts that we would yeah, hear, understand, obey, live these things out. They would um, yeah, lead us to, to glorify you all the more, to see the need for you to be glorified in all things, and that you already are glorified in all things. In Jesus' name. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. It's a clear conclusion that by the testimony of Scripture, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God alone deserves the glory. He deserves all the glory for what he has done in being patient and merciful to rebellious people and creating the way for us to have forgiveness and salvation. He deserves all the glory for how he has made us believers new and given us true joy, peace, satisfaction, and hope in himself. He deserves all the glory for his very identity. He deserves all the glory as the creator and sustainer of all things. God deserves all the glory. In large part, the biblical writers take this for granted. It's scattered all throughout scripture. It begins and ends the epistles. It's spoken of in the Old Testament. Isn't it clear that we should be listening and following our God because of who he is as the very creator, as the very deliverer of Israel? God deserves all the glory. And today in the sermon, I'm not going to look so much at proving that point. I think in large part, it is a given if we just think about who God is. But I want us to look into the implication of that point and align our lives to the truth, not just mental acknowledgement, that God alone deserves the glory, but a life lived in coherence with it. So first, I want to give us a definition of glory. It's a word we, we understand, but it's, it's hard to define. And glory, as it relates to God, is the culmination of all of God's infinite perfections, resulting in renown, honor, magnificence, and beauty, merited by his very identity and the outflow of his perfections in his deeds and how he interacts with the world. I'll read that one more time for us. <clears throat> for God, glory is the culmination of all of God's infinite perfections, resulting in renown, honor, magnificence, and beauty. It's merited by his very identity and the outflow of his perfections in his deeds and how he interacts with the world. To start today, I want to, give, to just briefly give an overview of the story of Israel, showing how God uses and creates them for his glory, and that that is a good and a right thing for them and for God to do. If God truly does deserve glory alone, and he does, then the best thing for us is to do what we are created for. If our creator is zealous for his glory and created us for his glory, we ought to live our lives for his glory, and it is good for us to do so. Even like Joseph was just saying, like, we are gods. He is the one that holds our lives. And as a response, give to God the things that are God's. Give to God ourselves. And that is right and good. In Genesis 12, Abraham is blessed and called out by God. And in that calling, God promises to make Abraham's name great. That's not an end in itself. It's not making Abraham's name great for Abraham's sake. It's making Abraham's name great for God's sake. God blesses and makes the name of Abraham great. 
and later Israel in general, so that it is a reflection of his glory and his character. In Deuteronomy 7.7, Israel is blessed and built up, not for their own intrinsic worth, not because they're the most numerous of nations that God chose them because they were the best of the nations. He chose them because they were the least of the nations so that he could be glorified through them. I'm going to read Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. If you want to turn there with me. We're going to be in a lot of places all over the Bible today. So, because uh, yeah, this is just a truth that is throughout the entire Bible. Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So in this passage, it's, it's clear that Israel is blessed because they're created for God's glory. God does all these things for them for the sake of his own glory. And that is right and that is good. They are his. He will take care of them. They can trust and rely on him. That's the story of all of Israel. You see them up against all these impossible circumstances. You see them in slavery in Egypt. There's nothing they can do to to free themselves. But God sends Moses. God sends the ten plagues. And they're freed from Egypt. They find themselves at the Red Sea with no way to cross it. with, With Pharaoh's armies behind them. And God splits the Red Sea. They find themselves often up against far superior armies that they have no chance of beating on their own. They're doomed. It's impossible, except that God shows his glory by delivering them through that. What's impossible man is, for man is possible with God, and he is glorified by making the impossible possible. We see that in our salvation. We'll get into that later. So God makes his glory clear over and over. He makes the impossible possible. It is a grace that we live for the glory of God. Because if God did not act for the sake of his own glory and allowed us to seek glory elsewhere, we would be far worse off. C.S. Lewis says, Our problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. We desire to make mud pies in a slum when we are offered a holiday at the sea. If God granted us to sit in all the glory that we could think up for ourselves or in other things, we would have nothing in comparison to the joy and contentment that comes from basking in and living for the glory of God. In God's love, he doesn't allow us to settle for anything less than his glory. We're going to see later 
that James and John, the disciples, are asking to play with mud pies. And what the Lord has planned for them is so different, so much harder, but so much greater than any plan they could make for themselves or any plan that they could make for Jesus. God's glory and him seeking his glory is what is best for us. I don't doubt that most of us here today are are familiar with the truth of glory to God alone. That's the purpose of our lives. That's a right and good thing. We agree with it. We say, yes, of course. It's clear that God deserves the glory. But scripture is also clear. Um, Yeah, it's clear that, yeah, even according to the other four solas, like, of course, God deserves the glory. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. According to scripture alone, God deserves the glory. Only God can receive the glory for our salvation, the gospel, and the world's very existence. However, since sin entered the world, we have often followed in Satan's rebellion of seeking glory aside from our eternally and infinitely glorious creator. Missing this, missing glory to God alone, is not far from any of us, and the consequences are dire. You want to turn to Romans 1 with me. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Here we see, again, God's glory is clear in the earth. It's been clear since the very beginning, since creation, clearly perceived. But, man, we suppress the truth. We know God, but we don't honor him as God. We seek glory elsewhere. We don't live as we were created to live. There's a problem. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've exchanged God's glory for lesser things. We've exchanged God's glory for mud pies. In Acts 12:23, Herod, there's a dispute with Tyre and Sidon, and they come to him and he gives this great speech. And they recognize that it is a great speech. And they say, wow, it's the, it's the voice of God and not man. And what happens to Herod? He's eaten by worms and he breathes his last because he does not give glory to God. All throughout the Gospels, you have the Pharisees with Jesus criticizing and calling out their self-righteousness. In Matthew 6, they're, they're seen praying on street corners with lofty words, with high speech, pretending to be praying and, and seeking God's glory and favor. But really, what are they doing? They're seeking their own glory and their own favor. They're seeking the favor of their name, the glory of their name. They're seeking the glory of the, the name of the Pharisees. These are the people that are, are highest 
in Israelite society, and they've gained that by pretending to give glory to God while giving glory to themselves. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, Pentecost happens. People are believing the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Many great things are happening. People are being generous all over the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas sells a field and gives all the proceeds uh, to the apostles. And so Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? They sell a field and give some of the proceeds to the apostles, but say that it's all of it. They did sacrifice. They did give up of their own possessions for the, for the church. But why did they do it? They didn't do it for God because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. They did it for the glory of man. They did it to be viewed well, to be elevated within the church because of their generosity. And what's the consequence? They're killed on the spot as soon as they're confronted, each of them. The disciples in Mark 9 and 10, Jesus foretells his death, burial, and resurrection, the the pinnacle, the linchpin of history. God's glorification is coming. And what are the disciples talking about after the second and third times he talks about it in Mark? Their greatness. Which among us will be the greatest? James and John coming to Jesus and say, hey, you have your glory, but we want to be at your right and your left in your glory. They missed the point. It's not about our glory. It's about God's glory alone. There is no other glory. Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, if we think, hey, like I get this truth. I'm never going to seek my own glory. I'm good. Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, they come into the the town. They heal a crippled man. They're not seeking their own glory. But the people come to them and view them as gods. They come to them and are seeking to worship them and sacrifice to them. They call Paul Hermes, and they call Barnabas Zeus. They're being glorified. Glory is being taken away from God for what God has done. So what do they do? They, they tear their clothes and they run out into the people telling them, stop, stop. This is wrong. This is horrible. It's God that has done this. Look to him. Do not look to us. We're just men. That is a right response. But again, glory will be thrust in places that it ought not to be around us. And we're going through the solas, which are spoken specifically against the Catholic Church. What does the Catholic Church do? They say, yeah, glory to God, but not just to him. They say glory to to the saints. Pray to Mary. Pray to the saints. Pray to these good, holy men. You have the Pope. The Pope is important. He's part of just the truth of God and how God is mediated between us. The priests are important in that. Glory to them because we need them to confess our sins to God. And glory to yourself because you earn your salvation. The Catholic Church missed this. It's not glory to God alone. It's just some glory to God and glory to other things. We as believers are quick to affirm this truth. But I do want us to see as we're going into this passage that missing it is not far from any of us. The flesh in the world around us scream to elevate ourselves and glorify each other in creation instead of, or even along with, the Creator. This is a horrible perversion of what God created us for. So, let's turn to Mark 10, 23 through 45. This is our main text for this morning. Just before this, A rich young ruler, a rich young man comes to Jesus. 
and he wants to follow him. This is a man that's, that's high in society, that's elevated, that is viewed well because of his money and his authority. He's even a, a righteous man by the world's standards. He's kept God's commandments since his youth. But one thing he lacks, he doesn't want to give up his many possessions and sell them. There's something that he's glorifying and trusting in and resting in more than God. It's not glory to God alone. The disciples think this is, a, this is the perfect disciple that we could possibly have with us. But God knows he isn't giving glory to God alone. So starting in verse 23, we're going to read through 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, We come and we see, the disciples rightly see, what you're saying, Jesus, is is salvation. Entering your kingdom is, is impossible. It's as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. We have a resident camel expert in the crowd today. Joseph, how big is a camel? Really big. Really big. You heard it here, folks. And the eye of a needle being... Really one of the smallest holes you can see. So for the Israelites, Jesus is pointing to the largest animal that most of them have probably seen. And he's pointing to the smallest hole that most of them probably experience in daily life. And he's saying, if you can fit a camel through the eye of a needle, yeah, you can earn your salvation. It's never going to happen. And the disciples are seeing this. Salvation in ourselves, through our own ability, through our own works, through our own effort, is impossible. But this provides a way for God to get glory by doing the impossible. Yeah. He's created the only possible way for us to be saved. We are sinners. We were created to live for God's glory and we have rebelled against that. We've chosen to do our own things, to value ourselves more than our creator. We disobey his commands. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. The Bible makes it clear that the penalty for the wages of sin is death. That sin cannot be forgiven apart from the shedding of blood. That's where we stand. 
There shouldn't be any way around that. We should have to pay that for ourselves. But God had a glorious plan, and that was through Jesus. He didn't leave us there. Jesus came, lived a perfect life in the, in the broken world that we live in. And he didn't come exalting himself, but he came humbly as a servant. And ultimately he came to die our death, to sacrifice himself for us, to pay our penalty. The linchpin moment of history where we see so many of God's perfect and infinite characteristics on display, his perfections, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his power, his wrath. We see God most clearly through the cross. But that wasn't the end. Jesus rose again, proving he had power over sin and death, proving that he could save us, doing the impossible, providing for our salvation. And not only providing for our salvation, but providing for our salvation in a way that doesn't allow us in any way to look to ourselves and say, wow, I've saved myself. I've earned this. That's the biggest difference between Christianity and the Catholic Church and Christianity in the world and Christianity in every other religion. This is the only way that glory gets, God gets the glory alone. In every other religion, you can point to yourself in some way and say, I worked for this. I earned this. I've been good enough for this. Not us. We know we can't. God is perfectly holy and we are not. We don't deserve his love and his grace. But gloriously, he has given it to us. Glory to God alone. So after this, Peter, he says, hey, we've left everything. We've done what the rich man couldn't do. And Jesus begins to talk about reward with them. But he ends it by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So first of all, I think Peter's recognizing, wow, you've done an impossible work in us. You've saved us. We know who you are. We're following you. That's not something that we do in our our worldly nature. Thank you, Jesus. Then Jesus points to reward. But in Matthew's account of this same story, he follows it up with the story of the the vineyard workers. So the owner, he hires workers at the beginning of the day, says, I'll pay you a denarius. They say, wow, great. I want to make a denarius. A few hours later, he gets some more people. A few hours later, some more people. A few hours later, some more people. So at the end of the day, there's people that have only worked for like an hour. And he pays all of them. And he pays all of them a denarius. And when it comes to the ones that have worked all day, they say, hey, like, don't we deserve more than this? You've given all of them a denarius. Like, we've worked harder. We've worked longer. We deserve more. But the the owner says, like, why are you criticizing me for being generous to these other people? Didn't we agree that this was a good and a fair price for me to pay you? The first will be last and the last will be first. God doesn't work like we think he works. We don't compare ourselves to others or we'll always be disappointed or we'll always be competing. No, he gives generously and that's enough. So now we come to Jesus foretelling his death 
Like I already mentioned, the second time he foretells his death, the disciples are immediately talking about who is the greatest of us afterwards. They don't really understand what he's saying, but immediately after they start talking about their own greatness. And this time the same. And so starting in 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So first is a picture here of of Jesus walking ahead of the disciples on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to bearing the wrath of God, on the way to the torturous death of the cross and being handed over to people that will torture and kill him. But who's afraid? It's the disciples. They don't fully understand what's happening but they're lagging behind, afraid, because they know they're going to Jerusalem. They know there's people that want Jesus dead. They get that something's about to go down. And Jesus tells them straight up, this is what's about to happen. But I think in what we see afterwards, they're still, they're still missing the point. This is God's glorification that is coming. But it's not what the disciples think. So in 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and they say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, I think James and John see... Okay, something's about to go down. Maybe they even recognize this has something to do with Jesus being glorified, with the Father being glorified through Jesus. Maybe they're familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, that there was suffering involved, that there would be hardship before his kingdom came. And as they're probably understanding it, before Jesus overthrows the Romans, there's going to be hardship and suffering, maybe even death. But I think they're thinking this is, this is a temporary thing. We're going to go through some hardship for a little bit. Maybe, maybe they understood somehow Jesus is going to die and rise again in some way during that. Uh, 
But on the other end, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to have like Israel's kingdom, God's kingdom in Israel as it should be. And we want to be at his right and his left when that happens. That's like best case scenario. James and John, they say, wow, like if the world could be just as we want it to be, if God could be glorified as much as we can imagine, that's what's going to happen. And we get to partake in some of that glory. Mud pies. That's what they want. They want mud pies because they're trying to give up the gospel, the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says, you guys have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink this cup I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism with, with which I'm baptized? Like, I'm about to suffer more than is even fathomable to anyone bearing God's eternal wrath over the course of hours, being tortured in the meantime. Can you drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? Yeah, you will. You don't know what that means right now. You're asking to be the robbers crucified at my right and my left. You're asking for suffering, a life marked by suffering, life marked by service. That's actually a good thing for you. James is the first of the disciples to be martyred. John lives a long life of suffering and service. Even according to church tradition, he, they tried to, to put him, baptize him into a vat of boiling oil. That's the baptism that he's asking for here. In that story in church tradition, he's delivered and there's no harm that comes to him. Still not something I'd like to try. They're asking for suffering and service. They think glory, exaltation. They think what the world says about what is, what is great and what is worth aspiring to. And Jesus is saying, you are looking in the wrong direction. You're trying to elevate yourself. You're trying to be first. Greatness, reflecting God's glory well, is found in being last, being servant of all. Look at me. So when the ten, they hear this, right? They're not happy. Hey, we want those places. They're indignant at James and John. How dare you try to be greater than us? We want to be greater. If we are seeking glory apart from God in this church, we will not be unified. Selfish ambition, hierarchy, comparing ourselves to one another... It will tear this church apart. We must be unified on this. Glory to God alone, not our own glory. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what marks greatness. Again, it's the same greatness that Abraham had. It's not his greatness. 
not for his own end. It's his greatness for God's glory. They still are missing which direction they ought to look for greatness. They are thinking like the world tells all of us to think. Elevate yourself. Have authority. Exercise it over people. That's when you've arrived. Have wealth. Gain these things for yourself. Live for yourself. No, we live for the glory of God. We live to serve. We live to follow in the example of Jesus. And these things are contrary to our nature. Wherever we see ourselves or each other doing these things, it's not, wow, you're doing a really good job. I'm doing a really good job. No, it's the spirit in us that allows us to do these things at all, to pursue anything apart from what the world tells us. It's God in us that allows us to serve, that allows us to even suffer for the sake of others. And rejoice in it and be satisfied in it because we're living for the glory of God. This doesn't mean as Christians we never take positions of leadership or authority, both in the church and in the world. But it does mean that these are not an end in and of themselves. And we lead in a very different way than the world does and do it to the glory of God alone. If we seek to do these things, to suffer and to serve for our own sake, for our own greatness, to raise ourselves up in the church, we're not going to be any better off than Ananias and Sapphira. I know a guy who, who joined a big mega church. His plan was to, to kind of climb into the leadership there to, to serve the Lord. How do, I, how do I do that? How do I climb into leadership here at this church? They sold him... Be a servant. Be a part of everything going on. So the man poured himself out for months and months at this church, being a part of everything going on, serving in every way he could find. After those months, he hadn't been brought into leadership. He was burned out. And it's because he was, he was serving for the sake of his own glory, not for the glory of God. He was serving in his own strength. It's a little bit of an extreme example, but aren't we tempted to do the same on a smaller scale? And Jesus is only calling his disciples to what he himself modeled and lived out. It's not about being served. It's about serving. The greatest there is, God, came and didn't lord over people. He served, suffered, and sacrificed. The first will be last, and the last First, what the world views as being less than the lowest people on the social ladder, servants and slaves, the children. But while the world calls us foolish for making ourselves low, we know that we're elevating God, not ourselves. We're able to actually reflect God's glory in a real way that the world cannot we're bearing his image well. I want us to turn to Philippians 2. What is the picture of Jesus modeling this for the disciples to the glory of God? 
going to read verses 1 through 3 first. I think this reinforces, again, if we're not seeking the glory of God alone, we will not be unified. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 2, we see unity in the church being unified. In verse 3, we see what stands in the way. Selfish ambition, elevating ourselves, glorifying ourselves instead of our creator. Verse 6, or verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the picture we get. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, right? He empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant. He humbles himself. And he does this being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This isn't what the world would expect from the most glorious there is from our creator, from the eternally glorious one. By the world's standards, if Jesus had come and lived as the world wanted, as the world tells us to live, he would have elevated himself, he would have exercised authority, he would have gotten whatever he wanted, he would have lived for himself. But how foolish would that have been when, God, when he was already in heaven, in full unity and equality with the Father in the first place? The truth is, our lives make just as much sense as that if we live for ourselves and not for the glory of God. We have eternity with him to look forward to. And if we're going to live and please ourselves now, elevate ourselves now, we're not believing that. We're not viewing God rightly. And because of these things, because of how Jesus lived, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Right? Especially coming right after his death on the cross. Him being the perfect servant. This is glorification. And it points to the glory of the Father. If we want to see God's glory, look at the cross. Look deeply. See God's perfections in the cross. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even here, modeling point to the glory of God the Father. As we imitate Jesus, we glorify God. We reflect his glory to the world. Just as Jesus perfectly reflected God's glory, was the the perfect radiance of the glory of God, we, in a much lesser way, 
as we reflect and look like Jesus, we reflect God's glory to each other and to the world. And that is good, and that is beautiful, and that is satisfying. So God deserves all the glory. We must recognize that our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, leaves no room for boasting. God has done all the work. We will be tempted to look to ourselves and other things for glory, to compare ourselves to each other, to create a hierarchy among ourselves and the world. However, Jesus points us to a better way, points us to something far greater than earthly glory, reflecting the glory of the Father who alone deserves the glory. When we affirm, yes, soli deo gloria, we are committing ourselves to die and to live a life of suffering and service for the sake of our glorious Lord. If we truly want to be the best and greatest image bearers, we must be the last and lowest of men. My call for us, Central Baptist Church, is that we would meditate on these things and be diligent to search ourselves for any areas where our actions or motives are not reflecting solely Deo Gloria. There is a lot at stake for ourselves and the church. Are you giving God the glory he deserves for your salvation and the Spirit's work in your life? Is this leading you to thanksgiving and worship, to proclaiming this gospel that has changed your life, proclaiming the glory of God to each other and to the world around us? Are you following Jesus' example to be a servant of all? Is that something that marks your life? Are you living for the glory of God alone and not your own in any way? Where in your life are you tempted to work for the praise and recognition of others and not for the glory of God alone? And finally, what are you aspiring to in life? Where do you want to be in five years, ten years? Where do you see yourself? Is that an end in itself? Is it just for the sake of being there? Or does it align with living to the glory of God alone? Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. He alone deserves the glory and we cannot miss this. Dear God, pray that you would be glorified in us, glorified in this church, glorified in in how we live, as servants and how we deal with suffering and deal with hardship. I pray that we would be beautiful reflections of who you are to each other in the world, that we would bear your image well, that you would reveal any places in our lives that we're seeking something apart from your glory, that we would be quick to repent of those things, to run from those things, and to run towards our, our beautiful purpose that you've given us in being created for your glory. You don't share your glory, God, and we praise you for that. You don't let us settle for anything less than your glory. That is good and that is right. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all the earth as the waters cover the sea, that your knowledge, the knowledge of your glory, We cover the earth.
We look forward to the day when, when people from all over see your glory, recognize it as it truly is, aren't running from it, aren't denying it. Use us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.